Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship of Huntsville this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. There should be a connection card underneath the seat in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, uh, either turn it in electronically with the QR code, or you can put it in the box in the back. And that box is also where we take uh, offerings. If you want to drop something in there, you can do that. You can use the card as well to ask anything you want, send in prayer requests, find out about this church, the ministries that are here. Whatever you'd like to do, that'd be great. Uh, So this day here, we're going to be covering, uh, CF's going to be talking and preaching uh, in John chapter 1, starting in verse 19 and all the way to 28. So I don't know how many verses that is, but that's going to set a record over the last year. So if you would, turn to John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. This is an interaction here with uh, John the Baptist and some men that the Pharisees sent to ask John some questions. And that's what we've got here uh, in these verses. So 19 through 28. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. Then they said to him, who are you? that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent from the Pharisees, and they asked and saying, why do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered and saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and for the truth and for the interaction here, just giving so much indication about your plan, the role of John and obviously the role of Christ Lord, I pray that uh, your truth will be made known to us this morning, refresh things, let us know, enlighten through your spirit to our hearts and to our minds. I pray, Lord, that you will speak through CF and be with him this morning as well. We say this in your name. Amen. We're now going to dismiss the kids ages three through fourth grade. They're going to go out to the hallway here and classrooms there where they do their thing during church, and you can pick them up in the same place when we're done here. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you with us. We're studying the Gospel of John and today's text, the one that he read. We're covering our area of 1928, looking at a, uh, the witness of John and uh, how John witnessed about the uh, person of Jesus Christ. And uh, we finished last week, we finished the prologue, which is verses 1 through 18 which really sets the stage for the Gospel of John and gives us an idea of what's the big thrust of the book. And the big thrust of the book is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he's presented in the book as such. So today we're going to look at the witness of John the Baptist and what occurred when they came out and saw him. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll begin, okay? 
Father God, we come before you, throne of grace, and we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your love toward each of us, for the blessings we have in this life. Pray, Lord, for this time of study together, that you would grant us insight and understanding and direct me as I teach. Help me to explain your word clearly and accurately, and that your people would receive it. And then, Father, as people are here today, you know where they are, what their needs are, what's going on in their lives. And I just pray, God, that through your grace and the work of your Holy Spirit, you communicate to them comfort, strength, and hope. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, Lord. Amen. Direct your attention there to, to verse 19. When he finishes the prologue, he says, Now, this is the testimony of John. The word testimony is maturia. The word that is used there, it's the same word that we talked about back in verse 7. And in verse 7, that word is translated as witness. Okay, so maturion, testimony or witness, the story, uh, what he's going to tell about the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ. It says, this is the testimony of John, and it is not John who wrote the book, but it is John the Baptist is who it is. And you will see that as we move through here. It says, this is testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of John where those words, the Jews, is used. The title, the Jews. What does that mean? Well, it's used 70 times in the Gospel of John. That phrase is close to 70 times give or take a few. But what it mainly references when it is used, it references that group of people which were opposed to the person of Christ. It is the religious leaders of his day. Uh, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. Those made up the biggest portion of it. In this case, it says the Jews sent priests and Levites you go down uh, further in the passage, verse 24, and it says, Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. So they were, they were priests and Levites from the Pharisees that were sent. And this group normally opposed Christ in just about everything he did. They, they just were constant opposition to him. And you're going to see that battle listed all the way through Scripture. <clears throat> this testimony of John the Baptist, why would they be coming to see John? Well, John was different than most people that had come before him, okay? If you want to turn in the book of Matthew, go to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll take a look over there at what the text says, beginning in verse 1 of the third chapter of Matthew. Our text reads as such, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John was a unique individual. 
Uh, he had unique clothing. He had a unique message. He had a unique diet. Everything about him set him apart from the people. His message was a message that was clearing the way for people to come to the person of Christ. But this, is, this message and the person of John was moving through that region. And so the religious leaders said, go down there, find out who this guy is. Let's, uh, let's, let's determine who he is. And so that's why they came. And they asked him the question in verse 19, who are you? And the way John answers that is by telling them who he is not, okay? Because he knew what they were, what they were asking about. And it says, he confessed, verse 20, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Okay? So what he says in that passage is, I'm not the Messiah. Israel was looking for the Messiah that was coming. The Messiah is Jesus, the promised one of God. And so John very clearly states, I am not the Messiah. And then he goes on and he says something else. And they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, why would they be thinking he was Elijah? Well, if you turn back in your Bibles to Matthew, I mean, to Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, and you turn to Malachi uh, chapter four, you can see why they asked this question. Malachi 4, 5. In the last two verses of the Old Testament, says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So he says before the great and, and dreadful day of the Lord, this Elijah is going to come. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now that reference there is clearly to John the Baptist. The message at the end there, Malachi 4, is a direct reference to Elijah. And yet, when you come back here to the New Testament, and you turn back there, you can find places where Jesus spoke about Elijah coming. Look in Matthew chapter 11, excuse me, Matthew chapter 11, and uh, beginning in verse 11, Matthew 11 and 11, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. All right? So they, they were looking for Elijah, and he says he is Elijah who is to come. But he gives further definition of that in Luke chapter 1. If you'll look over there in uh, Luke, the first chapter, 
and you can see where it's talking about the birth of John. Luke chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 15. Luke 1 and 15. Talking about John the Baptist, it says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Well, the prophecy says he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Christ says that that is who John is. He is Elijah. So he's a type of Elijah that is to come. In, Ma in Matthew chapter 17, you'll see another reference to him. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, he says this, verse 11. Then Jesus answered and said to them. Now, this is after the death of John the Baptist. So you can see he's still talking about Elijah and John the Baptist is dead. So, you know, he's not saying that John is definitely Elijah because he says Elijah is going to come. He says, then Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And who was that? John the Baptist came into what? The spirit and power of Elijah came as a type. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wish. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, fiery guy, they think, hey, this is Elijah. It's coming. The great and dreadful day of the Lord, judgment of God is coming. He says, no, I'm coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. You're rejecting him. You're going to reject Elijah anyway. The idea behind it. So they say, all right, you're not Elijah. You're not Christ. And then he says, then they ask him, are you the prophet? Verse 21. And he answers and says, no. Now, who is this prophet that is spoken about? Well, if you go back into Deuteronomy and you look in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, there is a prophecy given by Moses here. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Deuteronomy 18, 15. says, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So they're thinking this John may be the, the prophet. Well, we're going to find out who the prophet is because he's further defined in Scripture. If you look over in John 6 and 14, John 6 and 14, our text there, I'm going to back up to verse 13. So if you put it up there, this is right after he fed the 5,000, John 6 and 13. It says, therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They're starting to understand who he is. But these leaders came out there and they said, John, are you the prophet? The prophet is equated with Messiah as one and the same. You'll see it also stated in the uh, transfiguration of Christ when God spoke to him 
Look in Matthew 17, 5. What did he say about the prophet in that passage in Deuteronomy? He says, you will hear him or hear him is what he says. Then you look at Matthew 17, 5. And this is at the transfiguration. It says, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So you see the testimony there affirming the fact that Christ is the one they need to listen to. He is the one they need to hear. But John says, I'm not that prophet. I'm going to point the way to the prophet, but I'm not him. So they're thinking, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And John strips every one of those down and says, no, I am not. And so they ask him, point clear, verse 22. I'm back in John 1. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? In essence, what they're saying is, we don't want to hear who you're not. Who are you? Okay, if you're not Christ, if you're not uh, the prophet, and you're not Elijah, then who are you? And John says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And he gives them a direct quote from Isaiah 40, which is a prophetic reference to John. It was also given to his father before he was born, that this is the one that's going to make straight the way of the Lord. That phrase, what it means is this, that in their culture, whenever a king came, they would have a group of people to go out before the king. And what their job was to do was to clear all the obstacles off the road to where the king could come straight through. If they were crossing terrain, they would clear brush out of the way to where the people that were gathering to see the king would have all the obstacles out of the way to where they could clearly see the king. And so what John the Baptist is saying is, I'm coming to clear the way for the Messiah who is coming after me. That's what he's telling them. I'm the forerunner to the person of Christ. I'm fulfilling the prophecy. So when you see the one that makes straight the way of the Lord, that clears the pathway, you know the Messiah is on the scene. You know the true king of kings is about to make his appearance. So they go on and they continue to quiz him and they say, now those who were sent from the Pharisees, and they ask him, saying, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And so John answered him and said, I baptize with water, but there stands among you, or there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. So John clears the, clears the passage there, and he says, I come and I baptize because I am preparing the way for the one that is going to come, the one that's going to come soon after me. Now, what is this baptism that he's doing? We'll go back to Matthew 3, and we'll look at a passage there. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew, the third chapter, and we'll, uh, let's begin in verse 7. We've already looked at the description of John in 4 through 6, but we'll start with 7. 
It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. What was the condition of the nation of Israel at that time? They were, they were overwhelmed by unrighteous religious leaders. People, religious leaders that were putting a heavy burden on the people. Religious leaders that were actually creating ways to prevent people from seeing God. And they, they complicated the teachings of God and it confused the people. And so John addresses them as such. Jesus addresses them even more harsh. He says, you are of your father, the devil, is what he tells them. And he's going to tell them that in John 8. He really lays it on the line. You go over to Matthew when he's uh, upbraiding the Pharisees. And he says, woe unto you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he just rips them to pieces because they were unrighteous leaders deceiving the people and pushing people away from God. And so he tells them, verse 9, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children of Abraham even from these stones. In other words, the religious well-being of Israel does not rest upon you religious leaders. It's going to rest upon this one that I'm going to point you to. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, what is the bad fruit that the tree was bearing? The bad fruit, folks, was the message that the false teachers brought. Now, I know a lot of times when people talk of fruit, they always want to talk about character traits in a person's life. And they'll say, well, by their fruit, you'll know them. But if you go read that passage in the context in which it's given, it's given about false teachers. And the, and the fruit of a false teacher is the message that they bring. Outwardly, the Pharisees were as religious a people as you could get. I mean, they wore the robes. They followed the, every jot and tittle. Jesus even goes on to say, you even tithe the leaves off your mint plants. I mean, they were strict as could be as far as that came. So outwardly, they were the people that he described. He said, outwardly, they, they look good. They look like uh, freshly painted tombs, but on the inside, they're full of dead man's bones, okay? He says they are wolves in sheep's clothing. So their outward appearance, they look like a sheep. So he's not talking about character. When he talks about fruit, he's talking about what comes out of them, the message that they brought. It was their message that was corrupt, okay? And so he tells them, the ax is laid to a tree, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. In other words, he's saying, God is about to overturn you false religious leaders because your message is rotten and he's going to chop that tree down. And he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what he's saying there is, I'm baptizing you unto a baptism unto repentance. The purpose of his baptism was that they would unite 
with this group of people that were looking for the coming of the Messiah. By baptizing, they were identifying with them. He said, are you going to identify with people that are prepared for the Lord to come? A baptism under repentance was they were to confess their sins and prepare their own hearts for the coming of Messiah. Much like John the Baptist said, I've came as one that makes straight the pathway of the Lord. The message goes to the people and it's prepare your heart to receive this king too. I'm clearing the way in the broad sense, you clear the way in your own personal life. You, you get yourself in a position to receive the message of Christ, to receive the message of this Messiah. You prepare your way in your own heart and in your own mind to receive the Messiah that's going to be presented. Now, Jesus is right there on the scene. And Jesus has already been baptized because the next verse, we'll look at this next week, he says the next day, verse 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of the God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's going to go on and explain. How does he know that he is the Messiah that takes away the sin of the world? Because he saw the Spirit of God descend on him in the form of a dove. So he has positive identification of who the person of Christ is. And he's going to point him directly to Christ. At the time that he's speaking here, Christ is already there. He knows who Christ is, but he can't reveal him to the people yet. And he's going to reveal him. But he's made the way ready and prepared the way before him. Now you think of John the Baptist. Jesus himself said, among those born of women, he says, there's never been a greater preacher than John the Baptist. What made John the Baptist so great? He was out in the wilderness preaching was, was he great because he wore camel hair? Was he great because he ate locusts and wild honey? What exactly was it that made John the Baptist great? What made John the Baptist great was that he put himself down to lift up Christ. He didn't see his own self-importance. He didn't claim any big illustrious title. They threw it out there to him. Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? No, I'm not. He said, I'm just a voice out here crying in the wilderness. That is a picture of true humility in a person's life. That even though they have an important position and a very key position, a very key part of the fulfillment of revelation of prophecy, he chooses to put himself down lower. Look what he says in verse 27. It is he who is coming after me is prepared before me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose. In other words, I'm so low on the list here, I can't even undo this guy's sandal. That was the basic role of a servant in that day and time. The most menial, lowest role of a servant was that when someone would walk into the house, he would unstrap their sandals and wash their feet. He said, I'm so low when it comes to this man that I can't even undo your, his sandals. That's humility, folks. He wants no focus on himself. He wants all the focus on the Lord. And I think we can learn a lesson from John the Baptist. And that lesson we can learn is a lesson about humility. True humility is when you see yourself as nothing and God is everything. It's very important in life because many times we get too big of an impression of ourselves. We think that we're too big, especially preachers. Preachers tend to take that position a lot, that they're more important than the people, 
or that they're more valuable than the people. And many people that are in positions like that will try to assume that. But understand this, in the kingdom of God, if you want to be great, you've got to be least of the least. You've got to be the nothing of all the nothings is what God says. The way up in God's kingdom is down. Okay? It's never up. And John the Baptist took the lowest position you could possibly take. He said, I'm not even worth, I'm so low as far as ranking next to him, I can't even untie sandals. You got to get a, a foot slave in here to untie sandals before you even get to me, is what he's saying. And, and the Bible has a lot to say about humility. I wanted to close with that as a point of application. Look in the book of Philippians. Book of Philippians. Because many times in life, we lack humility. This is, you know, you may not struggle with it, but I, I struggle with a lack of humility. I know a lot of other people that do, but I know it is Sunday morning, and uh, that's not been an issue, so we'll, we'll, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. It says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort or love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection, any mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Okay? Having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Now, what does this mean to have one mind, one accord? Does it mean we all think the same thing? No. It means you have the same outlook on life. That is, I'm not important. Other people are more important than me. That's what he's saying there. Okay. Let each of you, verse four, well, verse three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. So what he's saying is our role in life as a believer is to lift others up. What did John the Baptist do? Who are you? I'm a nobody, but I'm here to tell you about a somebody. That was his approach. He put himself down. We should have the same mindset. We should, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. See, if humility is active in our life, we can really get ahead in a lot of areas. You know, you talk, let's just take marriage for example. When there's a lack of humility in marriage, there are two people that are blaming each other for the problems in that relationship. Humility of mind says, it's more important for me to understand what your issue is than it is for my issue to be aired. My issue doesn't have to be put out there. That's lowliness of mind, okay? Lowliness of mind is seeking the well-being of others over ourselves. It's the whole concept. It's the whole mindset of ministry. It is the very heart of the Christian faith is to have a, a humble mindset which values other people more than ourselves. And yet many people in Christian circles value themselves far more than other people. He says, verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now what we're going to do in the Christian realm, we're going to take the top individual in the Christian line. And that is the person of Christ who is very God. It says, who being in the form of God, verse six, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And that word robbery means something to hang on to. He didn't need that for his own worth or self-importance. 
but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those in earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's God saying in that passage is, if you truly want to be great in the kingdom of God, get yourself out of the way, get down as low as you can. What made John the Baptist the greatest important? He saw the kingdom of God as a first priority. He saw the things of God as being the most important things in life. And that's the picture that we receive here in the text about John the Baptist. He's great because he doesn't have a high view of himself. He's great because he needs to get out of the way and Christ needs to be put there. He even says, I must decrease and he must increase. And that is the truth of the Christian life. If we want to be great in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, be least. Put yourself to the bottom. Put other people in front of you. And folks, that would go for any relationship. Marriage, people you work with, people you're around. Try that. Put yourself low and lift others up. That's what made John the Baptist great. Let's go back and look at our passage and I'll conclude it right here. He says, these things were done in Bethabara. Now some translations will say Bethany, but it was not Bethany. It's actually in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And so J John says, I am the one of a voice crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. We can learn a lot from John, and that is the person of Christ is far more important in our life than what our own personal intentions are, our own self-worth, our own self-importance. Once we get our eyes off ourselves, we can better put our eyes on the Lord, all right? One of the greatest things that causes us to stumble in life is we see ourselves as most important and not others. And that's what messes our life up. So be like John the Baptist. Elevate Christ, exalt Christ, bring yourself down, and you'll find out it's easier to serve other people. Jesus is going to illustrate that to the disciples. When they get in the upper room, what do they do? They're all scrambling to get the best seat in the house. And what does Jesus do? He humbles himself takes off his outer garment, starts washing their feet. He said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be the least. That's the key to the Christian life. See yourself as least and see others as great. And John the Baptist was great. Matter of fact, of all preachers that ever lived, he's the greatest that ever lived. Why? Because he saw himself as a nothing and saw Christ as everything. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you thanking you, Lord, for your goodness and grace toward us and the many blessings we have in this life. Father, we pray that we would put it in practice in our life to exercise humility, to lift up Christ, to exalt him, and to, and to put ourselves down to where we can see others better. Father, help us to do that. Father, I pray if there's one here today that's never trusted Christ, that they would. Father, I pray for those that are struggling, going through difficulty, that, Lord, they'd see the importance of making themselves nothing so that they can build up the other person. So, Father, we lift this up to you and I ask this of you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.